This podcast is an EGA production. Welcome to Forecasting the Middle East, the EGA podcast on Middle East business, politics, and trends. I'm Tyler Jones, Director of Middle East and North Africa with EGA in Washington, D.C. In recent months, states across the Middle East have garnered international attention for major investments and acquisitions across high-profile sports leagues. For governments looking to diversify and modernize their economies, these investments make sense. But do these financial moves have a geopolitical angle? And if so, what can we expect across the global sporting world? To help us dissect these recent moves across the sports community, I sat down with Professor Simon Chadwick, Professor of Sport and Geopolitical Economy at Schema Business School in Paris, where he is also a member of Think Tank Publica. Professor Chadwick has worked in the sport industry for nearly three decades, a significant portion of which has been spent in the Gulf region and across Asia. Professor Chadwick has recently published a book, The Geopolitical Economy of Sport, Power, Politics, Money, and the State. Today, Professor Chadwick and I discussed what these investments and acquisitions mean for the sports world, how sports can be used as a tool of geopolitics, and what we can expect moving forward. Professor Simon Chadwick, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. So, Simon, obviously the big news coming out of the Middle East sporting world over the last few weeks has been the flurry of spending and acquisitions coming from Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Qatar. Now, in your recent book, you explore how sports and the business of sports can be used as a tool of geopolitics and geoeconomics. In the context of the Middle East, can you explain how we've been seeing this play out over the last few months? So um, you highlight the last few months, but in reality, it's been the last two decades, keeping in mind that Qatar bid to host the World Cup back in 2010. It was given the rights back in 2010. Um, the Qataris were, were contemplating hosting the World Cup before that. Uh, we have the Bahrain F1 Grand Prix took place in uh, the early 2000s for the first time. So this is this is... Uh, if it's a mega project or even a giga project, it's a giga project two decades in the making. Um, what I think is significant about the last few weeks and about this year is is that Bahrain, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Qatar have been uh, tootling along quite nicely. Um, obviously, the World Cup is, is is one instance, but we've got rugby and cricket in Dubai, for example. We've got motorsport and an investment in the city football group, uh, the, the the soccer group. Um, by Abu Dhabi. Um, but what's now happening is is the really big gun. Uh, uh, certainly of the GCC nation, Saudi Arabia has decided um, that it's uh, it's it's going to enter the fray. Now again, this is this is not instantaneous. it's it's been brewing for some time. One of the things that has happened within the last fourteen days is is that Saudi Arabia has announced um, an investment program in in football um, and and that is in conjunction what, with what it calls the privatization of its clubs. Uh, it's not privatization in the, the Thatcherite free market sense. Um, it is privatization very much in inverted commas, but the origins of, of, of this privatization program date back to 2015. So it was uh, first announced back in 2015 that, that the government would seek to 
transfer clubs into into private hands. Uh, the reason for that is to improve performance, uh, especially to, to, to bring a, a much greater focus on revenue generation, perhaps less, less focus on cost control. But nevertheless, where we are now and, and what we're seeing through uh, the investments that Saudi Arabia is making in football is about a decade in the making as well. But otherwise, we've seen lots of other things. Saudi Arabia and motorsports, Saudi Arabia and golf, Saudi Arabia and combat sports. Um, Saudi Arabia and cricket is a very hot rumor right now. And we're even, even hearing stories about Saudi Arabia and an NBA franchise or Saudi Arabia and an NFL franchise as well. So I think what we've seen is a group of very small countries working quite hard to make sport work for them. But now, you know, the big gun has arrived, um, spending very, uh, very large amounts very quickly and really looking to develop its presence globally in sport. Now, you recently wrote in an article in the context of sports that we are amid a wider pivot in economic and political power from the global north to the global south. So, again, in, in the context of sports, can you speak a little bit about what exactly you mean there? Sport as we know it today, for me, has really gone through three eras. The first era, Sport 1.0, um, late 19th century, early 20th century, predominantly European. You look at many of those uh, global sport governing bodies created by Europeans, still now located in Europe. Historically, their presidents have been Euro European. Um, just to give you an example, the FIA, the Global Governing Body of Motorsport, uh, all of its presidents through, throughout its entire history uh, had been European until last year. And now it has a president from Dubai. Um, so we can begin to see the changes there. But from Sport 1.0, this, this very Eurocentric um, uh, model of sport, as we progress through the 20th century, and particularly until the last quarter of the 20th century uh, and, and the first decade of the 21st century, I would say Sport 2.0, the American model. And, and I'm old enough to remember when back in the late 80s, early 90s, when um, people started to talk about European soccer clubs should perhaps commercialize and, and try to make a profit and sell naming rights. A lot of Europeans held their arms up in absolute disbelief and said, oh, no, we couldn't possibly do this. Um, but of course, now what we have is rankings of football performance. We have rankings of brand value. It's very common to sell you know, big sponsorship deals, big naming rights deals. Uh, so we kind of got used to the American influence in, on, on sport. It, it's more, much more of a commercial orientation. But what we're now um, encountering, I think, is, is what I call sport 3.0, which is it's neither this European sociocultural model or this North American commercial model. It is very much a, a, a geopolitical model. Um, the state of the art, I guess you could say, is, is coming out of the Gulf region, but equally, We've seen over the last decade or two uh, the likes of China uh, investing heavily in sport. We've seen um, Russia and, and Putin for a whole bunch of reasons, not just um, preoccupying themselves with, with the commercial elements of, of sport, but also the geopolitical dimensions too. And so we now are definitely in probably the, uh, I think, the early stages of this sport 3.0, because I think for the remainder of, of of this century, certainly up to 2050, but I would argue beyond that, what we are seeing is, is especially states in the global south 
investing heavily in sport for the same reasons that, that, that the Global North invests in sport, because it brings communities together, because it makes money, and lots of other related um, um, outcomes. But there is this realization that, that sport, I think, can, can be used for nation branding purposes. It can be used for uh, soft power projection. We see several nations very adept at uh, deploying sport for, for, for the purposes of diplomacy. Um, but also addressing some of the, 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 the economic and geographic challenges that countries face as well. And we think about Saudi Arabia and its over-dependence upon oil revenues. And so sport is one of the, the means through which to, to, to diversify and to engage in a broader transformation of economic activity in the country. So this is very, very different to if you go back to the 19th century in working class Manchester, when people kicked around a ball for fun. Um, but nevertheless, that was then, and this is now, and as I say, I call it the geopoliticization of sport, sport 3.0. So in discussion then of these investments, these acquisitions coming out of Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Qatar, the one word that keeps coming up is sports washing. So at a very basic level, what is that? I guess my first response to that is 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 that if if sport washing is the uh, the terminology that we're using, uh, history began a long time ago. Um, if we look at, for example, colonial era Great Britain, and and uh, I, I take an example of South Africa, at the turn of the twentieth century, so nineteenth into twentieth century, there were one hundred and seven thousand. Uh, South African prisoners in British concentration camps. Um, of those 107,000 people in those concentration camps, 28,000 died. Now, at the time, and, I, and I've looked at the news, newspaper clippings from the time, um, the British government was sending uh, soccer teams, rugby teams, cricket teams to South Africa, essentially to placate the local population. Now, seen through a 21st century lens, and using this terminology sport washing, that looks like sport washing to me. Um, so what I think we need to, to be very clear about is, is that the British have engaged in sport washing. Um, Nazi Germany in, in the, at the 1936 Olympics used sport washing. The Argentinian hunter at the 19, 1978 FIFA Soccer World Cup you have, have, are alleged to have used sport washing. So... I guess in essence, what we're seeing is, is that sport and propaganda have always gone together. Um, to think about it in 21st century terms, there are lots of people and organizations and events and countries that deploy sport as a means through which to generate image and reputational benefits. So, 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 so that, that, that's kind of my, 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 my kind of preamble. Um, Essentially, sport washing is cleansing image and reputation. So instead of people focusing on the crimes and misdemeanors of a country, instead, people are thinking about the great, great events that are heading to a country. They're thinking about the big stars who maybe play a professional sport there. They're thinking about you know, all of the money that's been invested into overseas sports properties. So you know, sport washing, I think, has, has driven its way to the very heart of, of, of 21st century sport. But as I say, I don't think it's a new phenomenon. So this use then of sports to distract from or otherwise mitigate what else may be going on politically, does it work? 
so in scientific terms, who knows? That's the simple answer. Who knows? Because there are no um, rigorous social scientific studies that have ever been undertaken in this field. And, and, and you know, I invite anyone who disputes this to you know, very quickly go to Google Scholar and put it in, the, put sport washing into Google Scholar and we'll see what comes out. So I think this is, this is uh, very much um, a notion that has been, uh, it's essentially, it's, it's a term coined by rights groups to draw attention to particular issues across the world in, 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 and obviously in certain countries. But in terms of the perceptual attitudinal and behavioral dimensions of this, we don't really know how this works. And, and you know, I, I guess there are two ways to, to, to think about this. I mean, increasingly, we see countries across the world, we're not talking about wars they're involved in. We're not talking about potential human rights abuses they've been engaged in. Um, you know, instead we're talking about their sport. You know, I use my my own country again. You know, you read the Amnesty International report on Britain. You know, we're, we're trying to deport people to Rwanda, but you, you you know, most people don't want to talk to me about the British government deporting people to Rwanda, even though they're not from Rwanda. Um, people want to talk to me about the Premier League. So you know, they, this is a kind of ongoing issue. But but you know, as I said, I think what's um, what's clear in my mind is is not just that that people people um, people some people do tend to forget about issues but but you know the reality is you and me are here tonight and, and I've spoken to endless journalists over the last two three four five years about sport washing I wouldn't have spoken to these people if it wasn't for sport so in many ways sport highlights the stains rather than washing the reputation and and, and I it's really interesting in in um in February uh, 2022 there there were several executions in Saudi Arabia in one day and under normal circumstances people in in northern Europe would would have been unaware of this but because at the time there were issues around the sale of Chelsea and there was a, a, a suggestion that Saudi Arabia might buy Chelsea suddenly everybody knew about this 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 episode and and so what I think is really significant to highlight is is that sport can draw attention to things as well as diverting people's attention away from things. Now, on the other side of that coin, when we look at where these countries are putting their money and putting their investments, you know, these are lucrative businesses. When we look at some of the major football clubs in Europe, these are hundreds of millions of dollars that we're talking about. So doesn't it just make sense then for countries that are actively trying to diversify their economies to be putting their money in places like this, in sports, where there's a lot to be gained from these investments? So to give you one example, uh, when Abu Dhabi uh, or an, uh, an Abu Dhabi state investment vehicle bought Manchester City in 2008, the English Premier League soccer team, um, Manchester City was 17th in the Deloitte Annual Money League. Um, it was generating less than 100 million pounds per, per season in revenues. Uh, here we are now, uh, 15 years later, and Manchester City as a club, not as a group, as a club, is number one in the Deloitte Annual Money League. 
um, it's generating in excess of 700 million pounds per season. So by the end of this decade, I think it's, it's, it's perfectly legitimate to assume that we will see the first billion pound turnover club. And it's possible that it could be Abu Dhabi owned, Manchester City. It could be Cathery owned, Paris Saint-Germain. So there is no doubt that there is money to be made in, in soccer and there's money to be made in sport more generally. What I think is particularly significant, not just about sport in the Gulf region, but sport in many territories around the world, excepting North America, is that they are commercially immature. So there's still some considerable way to go in terms of, of, of um, extracting value from, from some of the sports assets that we see in places like Britain and France, Germany, Spain and elsewhere in the world. And so in terms of a, in terms of a purely economic transaction, why wouldn't countries like Saudi Arabia invest in these properties? Because there's money to be made. Now, you know, if we, if we talk about Manchester City, it is only one, it is only one soccer club. But we've seen considerable increase in, in revenues. There is more to come, I think. Imagine if you own a, a network of soccer clubs or you imagine if you own a network of sports properties, of sports assets across the world in, in basketball, in American football, in soccer. You know, perhaps you have the right rights to stage events. Um, you are beginning to talk about a, a fairly sizable um portfolio of revenue generating assets and just to give some further context to that in the european union sport accounts for approximately two and a half percent of gross domestic product of european union gross domestic product so you know in terms of that diversification program and, and the transformation of economies that, that that you mentioned in your question there's absolutely a you know a, a perfect logic there may be a sociocultural logic there may be a health logic there may be a geopolitical logic but there is also a, a, an economic, financial and commercial logic to investing in sports as well. So when you look at where Saudi Arabia, the Emirates and Qatar have been putting their money and putting their investments so far, and at the top you mentioned a, a variety of different sports, are you seeing a strategy or a unified approach to how they are deploying their money at this point? Thank you for asking me that question because... When you sit in Paris, I'm sat in Paris now, or when I'm when I'm back home in the UK, um, it's as though they're all the same, and they're all doing the same thing, and and that is absolutely not the case because whilst there is a degree of of copying, um, so they do monitor one another's strategies very closely, as I'm as I'm sure you're aware, but these are different countries facing very different challenges. And so if we take Qatar as one example, um, strategically, geographically, very vulnerable, security drives to the very heart of what it always has to do. A lot of its investments in sport have been, yes, part of the diversification agenda, part of this, this uh, rentier state behavior that we sometimes see uh, such, such states engaging in. But essentially what Qatar has also been doing is, is to create interdependencies with with people who can take care of it should any trouble happen. And so this kind of diplomatic hedging that we've seen in Qatar um, has been evident throughout, for instance, the World Cup. So one of the legacy initiatives of the 2022 Soccer World Cup in Qatar, uh, a programme called Generation Amazing, was essentially a diplomatic effort designed to, to build interdependencies with other nations across the world. So Qatar, Qatar obviously 
owns several assets. It, it's got investments in, in, in soccer, but it's also got investments in, for example, the equine industry, in equine sports. Um, it's looking at other assets now. It's, it's, I think it's seeking to expand its portfolio of sports investments now. But Qatar is very different to Saudi Arabia. Geographically, Saudi Arabia is much bigger. Uh, its armed forces are dramatically, significantly bigger than Qatar's armed forces. So it doesn't have the same security concerns necessarily as, as, as Qatar. Its population is bigger, 36 million. Its population is predominantly Saudi Arabian, whereas in Qatar, only 10% of the population is Qatari. So in terms of social cohesion, the, the social cohesion challenges that Qatar faces and tries to address through sport in Saudi Arabia, that, the whole social cohesion agenda is very different. It's, it's based upon you know, east of the country, west of the country and, and, and different religious groupings. So in terms of patterns, we see an investment of sports. That's one thing. Yes, those investments are well thought through and strategic. They're not random. They're, they're not opportunistic necessarily. There is a, a pervasive strategic logic there underpinning them. Um, football does play a big part in, in what all of them are doing, you know, Abu Dhabi, Qatar and Saudi Arabia, simply because it's a global language. Lots of people understand it. Uh, buying a, buying a high-profile soccer team or by staging a high-profile soccer event um, brings with it incredible geopolitical and economic capital. Um, but I think at the same time, what, we, what we're seeing in, for example, Qatar is, is historically a focus on events. Um, in Saudi Arabia, there is an emerging narrative around not just soccer, but also motorsports and combat sports. So WWE, mixed martial arts, um, boxing bouts, Abu Dhabi, and to a certain extent, Bahrain too, very much focused on motorsport. And, and for those who are familiar with, with Abu Dhabi and, and with motorsport, we've got the Yas Marina development, for example, and Ferrari World, a, a theme park base there. Um, so we're seeing that in Dubai. Dubai is, is, is to an extent a little bit of an outlier because Dubai was first to the market in sports terms. There is a sports city there. Dubai managed to attract the International Cricket Council, the, the global governing body of cricket, to relocate to, to Dubai. They've got a, a prestigious rugby sevens tournament takes place there, but that's pretty much it. Um, so I, you know, it's going to be interesting to, to look at Dubai, I think, over the next five to ten years. Does it respond to what Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia and Qatar are doing? Oman is just beginning to wake up a little to sport, but not in a, not in a major strategic way. The interesting one, the, the, the country with the largest sovereign wealth fund in the region is Kuwait, which in sporting terms has done nothing. Um, and, and it's going to be interesting to see if, if strategically... Kuwait up to 2030 and maybe beyond decides that it needs to to engage in sport and play the same game as its near neighbors but at the moment nothing coming out of Kuwait so you you brought up a point there that I want to touch on because in just about every discussion about the growing sports industry in the Middle East like we've been talking about today it's Saudi Arabia it's the Emirates it's Qatar it's it's those three Besides then Oman and Kuwait, are, are you seeing other states in the region now warming up to the idea or exploring the options of putting their money behind sports like the main three have? 
It is, it is relatively quiet, I think, uh, across the GCC beyond the, uh, the usual suspects that, that we've mentioned. What I do find especially interesting about Saudi Arabia is, is it's, it has adopted or appears to be adopting um, a an external collaborative approach to its engagement with sport. This is not this doesn't just come in terms of acquisitions of properties overseas. You know, we, we think about LIV Golf or we think about uh, Newcastle United, the, the Premier League soccer team. Um, there is a, a strong rumour uh, that Saudi Arabia will bid to host the 2030 FIFA World Cup, the Men's World Cup. Uh, the story seems to go that this will be in conjunction with Egypt and Greece. And what's interesting about this is that Saudi Arabia appears to be proposing that they will, uh, that the country will fund the the stadium construction and infrastructural development costs. Now, this kind of stadium diplomacy we, we've seen in recent times. So China in Africa, uh, China has been very, very active in Africa, uh, gifting stadiums to African nations in return for strategic advantages, not normally access to, to scarce natural resources. But if this does happen, I think it, it marks a, a particular shift for Saudi Arabia into the whole diplomatic arena through sport. And, and given, given the positioning of Saudi, the, the, what, it, what, it, what, what it sees as being its, its, its positioning in the world as being an Afro-Eurasian hub, you know, an Egypt, Greece, Saudi Arabian, Saudi Arabian World Cup, is entirely in keeping with with that positioning. That's not by chance. It's 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 not just a you know kind of a, a, a by accident or fortunate. You know, it's well thought through, and and that spills over into Saudi Arabia's role in the Red Sea, the Suez Canal, Eastern Mediterranean, into the Black Sea, and and that for me I think is really really significant because whilst it's diplomatic and geopolitical, clearly there are economic implications coming from this. The the other the other actor. In, in, in all of this is China, because in some ways Saudi Arabia is taking its place from, from China, but also, as, as, as your listeners may know, uh, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and China is warming. Um, we saw for the, the, the Qatar World Cup, the World Cup final, the, the, the final venue in Lusail, just outside Doha, the stadium was constructed as a joint venture between uh, between a Qatari contractor and the China Railway Construction Corporation, and and what I suspect that we may well see. Let's imagine that in 2030 Saudi Arabia does win the right to stage the FIFA World Cup. I suspect that Chinese construction companies will be on the scene pretty quickly, and and will be uh, will be seeking to to secure some of those contracts. I think the other thing that I would say in 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 relation to that, what we also saw, President Xi visited Saudi Arabia in December, an official state visit. And very soon afterwards, we saw Saudi Arabia's public investment fund uh, acquiring a $300 million stake in VSPO, which is a Chinese esports business. So, um, we, we, as I see it at the moment, we know what's happening in the Gulf, pretty much. Um, it's, it's what's happening in the Gulf and its external engagements that I think is the next phase of what's really interesting. So, I want to touch for a moment on a point you made at the outset here. And I, I'll provide a little bit of context. When we look at legacy American leagues like the NBA, the NFL, the NBA has decided that it will allow sovereign wealth funds to purchase minor, minority stakes in basketball franchises. And then on top of that, we have the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, 
saying that he won't rule out Saudi PIF investment in the league. And put on top of that, we've seen the NBA play preseason games in the Emirates. So do you think then that these legacy American leagues like the NBA, like the NFL, are on the radar for Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Qatar in terms of investment and deploying funds and and making acquisitions? Simple answer to that question is yes. <laughs> um, I can't put it any more starkly or bluntly <laughs> than that. Uh, yes. Um, it's interesting because in, English soccer teams when, when weren't created with the intention of them being sold to sovereign wealth funds from, to, from Asian nations, but yeah. that's exactly where we are now. And um, as I mentioned to you a little earlier, attitudes and behaviors do change and, and people eventually come round to the idea and, and it becomes normalized. Um, and I guess it's at that point where some people, some people will say, hey, you know, they, this is how sport washing works. Things become normalized. But I, by comparison, I would also point obviously to, to the PGA and to um, LIV Golf. PGA was established in 1916. So it took it a, a 107 years to get where it is today. And effectively, LIV Golf within two years has, has, has attained what, what the PGA took more than 100 years to do. So that should illustrate for us that anything is possible. Anything is possible. And particularly during, especially in the global north, certainly in Europe, where economic conditions are still quite austere. We're still struggling after the 2008 financial crash. I think Europe, Europe is still on the back foot after the financial crash. And, and, and that has created economic problems, but also opportunities for new investors to enter the, the market. Um, but I think at the same time, what you've got to keep in mind is, is I go back to Saudi Arabia again, that's 36 million people and, and, and a, a government that is intent on increasing population size beyond 40 million. And clearly we're talking about a, a significant proportion of the Saudi Arabian population having high disposable income as, as, a, as a market that offers some commercial potential. You know, again, why wouldn't NBA franchise, why, why wouldn't the NBA and, and NBA franchises be looking at the commercial opportunities that, that potentially are available in the Gulf region? So you know, I, th I think it is bilateral. It's, it's a two-way street. What I would, it, I, I guess that there are some sensitivities in the United States, particularly with the United, uh, with the Saudi Arabia you know, if the public investment fund was to take a stake in a franchise, you know, I'm sure that there would be domestic and, and, and external political ramifications of that. But I, I, I think if, if I was to, to try and at least reassure American sports fans and, and, and the American public more generally, in my opinion, certainly with Saudi Arabia, and for that matter, I think with Abu Dhabi too, as we've seen at City Football Group, is, is they are professional in what they do. They are strategic. Um, they are serious in, in, in trying to make their projects a success. So the, these are uh, these are not they're, they're not investors who are you know, who are buying crown jewels to, just to show off to guests every now and again. You know, they, it strikes me that they do actually care. And I think the other thing as well is is they're hiring in the best people to to, to run their operations for them. And if you look at what's happening, for instance, at Newcastle United, now owned by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, 80% owned by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. This is a club that is in the middle of a transformation, uh, not just on the field. So performances have improved, 
but off the field too. And the coaching system has been um, transformed, but I think the commercial activities of the club are also being transformed too. So I think you know, what I would say to people is, is, is the, these, people, these people are not asset strippers. You know, they're, 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 they, they appear to be in this for the long term and they appear to want to do the right thing and to manage their assets in the most effective way possible. Now, Simon, the last question I have for you, we've talked about a lot of a lot of sports across a lot of different countries. What sports that perhaps aren't being talked about right now would you say are on the radar for investment moving forward? That's a really great question because I, I, I think there, there are sports there are sports that, that are under the spotlight, but there are also sports that we that we perhaps don't even realize are, are going to be there. Um, you know, uh, so if I start with the sport, sports in the spotlight, cricket is one. Uh, a lot of Americans might think cricket, what the hell is cricket? Um, and, and, and as an Englishman, maybe I could spend the next four or five episodes of the podcast <laughs> trying try to explain the rules to you. But uh, the interesting thing is, 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 is that the world's most populous nation now plays, you know, is, is a cricket nation, India. Um, and uh, the, even the IOC, the Olympic Games, is look, taking a close look at, um, at cricket as a potential uh, Olympic sport. Uh, there is an, an, a version of the IPL now operating in, in the United States. What's really interesting about cricket is, is that during the pandemic, Saudi Arabia's public investment fund invested into Reliance Geo, uh, Reliance and uh, Geo and Reliance Industries uh, invest heavily in cricket. So Reliance Geo has just broadcast the most streamed cricket game in history. Saudi Arabia's public investment fund owns a stake, I think a 2.5% stake in Reliance Geo. But also um, Mukesh Ambani, who, who was the other the founder and, and is the chair of, of um, Reliance Reliance Industries? He also owns uh, an Indian Premier League franchise and, and owns Indian Premier League um, broadcasting rights too. So cricket is cricket is on the in, in, on the radar. Esports. It it's interesting about about esports in the region for 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 a couple of reasons. The first one is is that it's incredibly hot in the summer and you can't go out. So you can still foster a sports culture indoors in the summer. Um, and, and what we're seeing is a, is a big uptick in the number of esports professionals in, in the Gulf countries. It's interesting that the world student, the world female student esports champion recently was a Saudi Arabian woman. Um, so you know, this is attracting a lot of attention. And, and I think Saudi Arabia sees itself an, as an event host. It sees itself as uh, a supplier of athletic talent, if we can put it that way. But they also see themselves potentially as, as being a digital hub. So software developers and, and game developers as well. So esports absolutely in the spotlight. What we're seeing coming out of, um, out of Qatar is paddle. So Qatar Sports Investments, which is the owner of, of Paris Saint-Germain, um, has invested fairly heavily in, in paddle. And, and so paddle, and, and um, I know that in the United States, a lot of people play pickleball and, and paddle is, is seen as a rival to pickleball. Um, but there's some, big, there's some big money coming out of the Gulf uh, be, behind paddle. But, other, but otherwise, what, what I'm hearing is, is that essentially what, what 
some of those Gulf nations are looking to do is to create their own sports properties, their own unique properties, yeah. you know, where in essence the IP belongs to them. So they, they're going to create sports and formats that um, you know, it's the, they are theirs to commercialize. So, uh, so I think uh, you know, we should be looking towards um, some of the some of the infrastructural projects that we're seeing across the region. So, I'm thinking about Red Sea Project, for example, in in Saudi Arabia, uh, where kind of high end luxury tourists are, are, are intended to be the target audience. So, we may well see some some aquatic sports developing there. Keep in mind too that the Asian Winter Games will take place in Saudi Arabia in 2029. I think it is. Uh, so again, in, in terms of the development of, of new forms of winter sport, potentially uh, 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 ahead of the development in, in, of infrastructure in Saudi Arabia, that's something to, to think about as well. Professor Simon Chadwick, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me.